Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Catherine Boyle, returning to the Venture Stories podcast. Uh, Catherine, we last time talked about deep tech. Here we're, uh, we're here today to talk about religion and, and media. Uh, and Catherine, you are a partner at General Catalyst. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. I know a very different discussion than the one we had last time, but I'm excited. Yes, totally. L- let's get into it. So you recently wrote this great post in the Washington Post about how San Francisco has digitized so many industries, but hasn't really uh, penetrated religion in the same way. Why don't you uh, unpack the points in your, in your piece and, and why you wrote the piece in the first place? Certainly. So yeah, it's been a question of mine for a long time. When you look at just all of consumer technology and just how uh, particularly venture has been focused on so many categories, there's always this meme that there really isn't anything left. Um, and if you belong to a religious community, you look at websites that seem to be like old GeoCities websites plucked from the 90s. But it's like the, the technology used by churches and, and particularly the technology used to help someone in their faith um, is, is quite nascent. Um, and so I've, I've been spending a lot of time with, with companies of various faith traditions that are, that are venture backed, um, that are looking at um, building supplements or building communities for, for people that belong to certain faith traditions. And what's surprising is uh, a couple of things. There's, there's more than people would imagine uh, for various faiths. And then two, during COVID, these companies really saw an interesting bump. And so my, my kind of interest in this is that uh, these companies are doing much better than anyone would expect. If you're listening to kind of the predominant media narrative, a Pew Research Forum is probably the best place to, to go for information about how religious identification is in the U.S. And religiosity in the U.S. and in Western Europe in particular has been on the decline for the last 10 years. Uh, in 2019, the Pew Forum put out a study saying that only 65% of Americans identify as Christian broadly, which is down by 12% over the last decade, which is a, a huge decrease. And that the fastest growing religious affiliation uh, is the nuns category or people who don't consider themselves to be affiliated to any category. So it's interesting that you would see these sorts of pops in, in spirituality and in or spirituality and, and, and in questioning or people who are interested and faith, given that the decline is happening at the church level. Um, so I think there's a number of people who have hypotheses, and particularly the founders that I've talked to, is that it's not necessarily that people are losing faith or losing interest in religion. Uh, it's that they're the sort of antiquated measures that we have of, I go to church at a specific time, or, you know, we, we only meet in person, is not really fulfilling the needs of sort of this new generation of, of, of faith seekers. Um, and so what's interesting is a lot of these companies are building tools that help with Christian meditation or that help with building communities in, in different faiths that allow people to supplement their faith or, or re-engage with it in a way that, that they wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago. Yeah. You mean fastest re- uh, rising religion uh, or, or religious group besides politics and partisan politics and yeah. people channeling their, their interest in that. I mean, give, give us a little bit of historical overview of didn't the Christian right used to have much more moral authority in, in society? How did we become less less secular, and uh, and why is that changing a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so I it, it's interesting. I think you know the last if you look at the last fifteen years, secularization has has definitely been on the rise in terms of how you know how we affiliate with churches, but then also even just the media conversation of how we talk about politics. Um, you know, I, I'd say that if you look at kind of two thousand four, which is the election that that people really point to as the, the Christian right having sort of its last stand. That was an election that feels like, you know, a very, very long time ago, even though it's 16 years ago. Like the, the kind of political lines have been redrawn and the, the, the power of the, the Christian right as a political movement, I think, is, has softened greatly. And, and even in, you know, I think Donald Trump's presidency is an example of that. Um, it, he didn't run on a, a kind of, you know, traditional Christian platform, um, although we'll see if that changes given, given the Bible photo op he recently did. But, but, I, but I think the, the, the more telling information is just the amount of times that people go to church. Um, so people will, you know, people used to identify as, as Christian and maybe not show up in seats. And the Pew Forum has really shown that, that there's become this, this kind of, you know, 
less need to identify with a religion than there used to be, say, 20 years ago, or even particularly 50 years ago. I mean, people used to be very vocal about what religion they identified with. And I think now the sort of narrative of, wow, there really aren't butts and seats, and people really aren't affiliating publicly is, is sort of what's happened over the last 10 years. And what I think people who are, are watching this space are, are, are asking is, is that going to change given a lot of the, the political climate? To, to your point, we are more polarized than we've ever been. Polarization has increased along political lines. And so does that lead people to start seeking for something beyond themselves? And what will that seeking look like? Because it, it likely won't be going back to, to the pews every Sunday. It'll likely be some sort of different seeking, but it could be within the context of traditional religion. Yeah. What's your sort of armchair take uh, to your point on uh, why we are more polarized than, than we've ever been? Or what are the biggest factors that have, uh, that have led to that? Oh, gosh. I mean, that, that is a very difficult question to answer and one I've been thinking about you know, a lot this week. I think it's, it is hard to look at you know, the combination of factors that have, have led to this, and, and I, I'd rather just look at it as kind of specific factors. I do think secularization in particular is, is something that has led to that. If you look at just kind of the history of secularization in various countries, with Europe being a good example, because they've sort of been, you know, say decades ahead of us on this trend uh, for a long time, polarization has increased in those countries as well. And, and so I do think there is a link between if you don't have a unifying factor beyond the state, if the state is sort of the highest authority, and particularly if, if human rights, uh, which has become sort of the language of, of polarization in many ways, if human rights are conferred by the state, um, versus conferred by something outside of people, it's hard to find sort of common ground. And so I do think a lot of polarization has to do with, with language. It has to do with sort of, you know, what people prioritize. And, and is there something outside of these sort of tribal groups that people identify with that they can rely on to bring them together with other groups? There's a lot of other things I think people point to. I mean, definitely the, the you know, technology products that we've built, kind of the communication systems that we've built. You know, I, 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 on the media side of this, which I spend a lot of time thinking about, I do think that polarization has increased because of, of the change in the fairness doctrine. Um, which is not necessarily, I, I actually am in favor of the fact that there are more voices in the media space than there have ever been, and that it's possible um, to have sort of, you know, uh, anyone can open up a blog, anyone can open up a Substack, anyone can, can have their own podcast and broadcast their views. But that sort of selection of being able to get the news from specific, you know, specific areas or specific personalities has definitely increased polarization and allowed for more choice in terms of the types of, of, of you know, news that you'll get. So it, the, the big question of, you know, what has increased polarization? I think it's along many, many lines. It's, it's not only politics, it's not only media, it's not only, you know, increased secularization or, or just, or, or even people not identifying with, you know, cities or rural, there, there's so many different lines, uh, but it's a confluence of all of these factors coming together um, at, a, at a time when the sort of news cycle in particular is accelerating greatly. Yeah. Some, some people uh, blame sort of the lack of, of sort of greater collective identity. We have collective identities. They're just like Democrats or public and they're just at war. Um, but the sort of the lack of coherent, you know, collective identities in religion used to be a huge one. You know, nationalism is another one. And if we don't, don't have that, you know, it seems we need to find, find other sort of greater collective identities that we can um, cohere around. It, it, to that end, um, if, if, if this, is a, this is a very difficult question, but if you were deemed sort of the polarization czar and were given, I don't know, $10 billion or $50 billion, you know, basically unlimited money to try to lessen the polarization, let's say in the United States, what might you consider? Oh, gosh. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a difficult question because I, I you know, I, I'm looking at kind of what's happening in the media space right now, which is a space that I've, I've studied in depth, given that I was a, a former reporter. And the polarization even in the media right now um, at op-ed pages in particular, I mean, the big story this week has been sort of the New York Times backtracking on the, the op-ed from, from a sitting senator. And no matter what you think about the decision of the New York Times, which is clearly you know, very controversial, if you're right-leaning, you, you likely disagree with the decision for them to, to put their notice. If you're left-leaning, you think that it's a righteous act. No matter what, it's just a perfect illustration 
of how polarized even sort of the elite sources of information, like how polarized a newsroom can be, how polarized along generational lines uh, universities can be. And so what's really interesting about this is that all of these institutions are sort of having this moment where they have to reckon with generational differences and ideological differences within their own elite structures. And it'll be interesting to see whether COVID has a big impact on this, particularly at the university level. Because I, I do think that a lot of the polarization that we're seeing comes from, you know, these sort of siloed, you know, siloed academic, like academics, siloed, um, you know, media influencers who have one area that they cover and are maybe not engaging with, with other concepts or ideas or types of people. But I, you know, how would I spend $50 billion? I mean, that is a really good question that I actually haven't thought about because I, I, I've been more diagnosing the problem versus thinking about solutions. And I'm not sure I'm the, the right person to come up to a solution with polarization globally. Totally. And a very difficult question. Let's get into the New York Times story. I really wanted to get in because it, it illustrates a bunch of things that you've been talking about previously about the tension between institutions and individuals um, and how, you know, journalists want to sort of maximize their individual voice. And sometimes that, that, that's sort of at the expense of institutional uniformity, perhaps. And the, the Barry Weiss sort of, um, you know, tweet about how there's this generational divide between the older group that valued sort of this, you know, civil libertarianism. You, you tweeted this quote, you know, I, I disagree with your, your uh, I might disagree with you, but I'll defend your right to say it, you know, that sort of ethos. And then there's this younger crowd or this other crowd, um, you know, prioritizes maybe what they'd call justice and this is the right thing and we can't have, you know, fascism or, 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 or you know, um, whatever they, they might say. And then you were saying that the media is more ideologically polarized and the universities too. Some people might just say that, is it really polarized or did it just like move uniformly left? <laughs> and so where do you net out on what's, um, what, what's your opinion on, on, on what's happening here? If, if you were, you know, still a journalist what, at the New York Times, you were a Washington Post, but if you were at New York Times, what might your opinion be or stance be? What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting, and I, I point to a few examples of when I, I, I think what is happening is that institutions can no longer protect their journalists and journalists no longer think of themselves as bound to an institution. And so I, an example of, uh, that, I've, that I've pointed to a few times is a, is a journalist named Felicia Sanmez at the Washington Post, um, an excellent political reporter who had spoken very publicly before about uh, a sexual assault that happened to her. Um, and she'd spoken on her you know, Twitter feed, on her channels multiple times and is sort of known among maybe you know, 10% of her, her following on Twitter follow her because she's um, an outspoken person for victims' rights. When, when Kobe Bryant died in January, uh, she tweeted a headline, no commentary, no context um, about his, his rape case. And it caused a huge outcry on social media. I mean, I've never seen someone get ratioed so quickly. And the editors of the Washington Post, uh, Marty Barron in particular, who's the executive editor, sent her an email that then became public that said, please stop, you're hurting this institution. And what's interesting is that, you know, Marty Barron is one of the most effective editors in the country. He was the, he was the editor who was in Spotlight, who, who led um, uh, the investigation against the Catholic Church in Boston for, for priest abuse. Like these are, these are people who I would argue are at the top of their game. And they're having very ideological differences about what it means to be a journalist and what it means to speak publicly, given that these institutions are under attack. <laughs> you know, the, the Washington Post is under attack by, by many different you know, other institutions, including the president of the United States, who calls it the Amazon Washington Post. So it is a, a trying time, I think, for journalists who often align on the same value set. I think, you know, everyone, you know, something like 90% of the Washington Post voted for Barack Obama. It might be higher than that. I'd say the same is probably true of um, the New York Times. Like these are, these are, you know, progressive institutions, even by their, their own kind of calculations. But along these lines of what it means to value speech, and particularly what it means to give voice to people who, who might have differing opinions to the people on staff, there is a wide array of opinions of what should be said and what can't be said. And I do think that it has to do with the business model some. Like some of it is ideological, but the other part of this is if you are a journalist at the New York Times or the Washington Post, the way that you make a name for yourself is by having a Twitter audience. It is by you know, amalgamating voices on your platform and becoming someone who's, who's more powerful than the institution. And so I think that's the difficult thing is there's this tension between what does it mean to be an institutional reporter 
And what does it mean to create your own brand and your own following so that you can move up in the organization or get a book deal or become a CNBC contributor? Those are important things to the livelihood of journalists who don't make much money. So there is this tension both on the how do I remain true to the institution, but also how do I create a brand for myself? And in in that op-ed specifically, I believe it it was a viewpoint shared by 58% of of Americans. Um, You know, it's a senator. The New York Times, people say it doesn't have much political diversity within it. I guess what's the best counter argument for why? Because to me, it seems obvious that that piece should have been published. And I I don't understand why most of the country supports it. If it's a respectable person, why is that not appropriate for, for the New York Times? And then my question is, should the New York Times be somewhat representative of the country either politically or at least try to represent them if they don't have their, their views themselves. What are your thoughts on that? So in, in, in some ways, and from everyone that I've read who's, who's been you know, saying that this is not the appropriate time to post this piece and this piece is actually calling for violence, I, I think that the, the best interpretation I've heard is that it's sort of a, a literal versus sort of, you know, a literal interpretation of what the words said versus the context in which the words were said. So the, the senator also said some, some things that were, you know, much more volatile on Twitter, where people interpreted them as calling for violence. Um, you know, it is, a time, it is a horrific time in the country in terms of how people are feeling and in terms of, you know, watching military take to the streets. That it was, you know, and even the headline, which, you know, headlines tend to always, you know, try to, to grab attention was, you know, send in the troops this sort of militaristic, you know, turning on your own citizens, which I think is sort of the, the number one concern of, of what's happening in the country. And so I think there's some editors, and particularly the editors originally who published it, believed that, you know, this is this is a senator, this is something that people, you know, are, are, are agreeing with, and this is a, a widespread view of a lot of people in the, in the country, we should hear this voice. And the New York Times is is actually pretty open with a lot of the stories that it publishes. You know, it published a story by the Taliban, and that's sort of what the right is pointed to as, okay, if you're going to publish the Taliban, you have to publish senators as well. Um, but I think on the more progressive side, the view is, you know, is this the right tone of a piece? Is this piece actually going to call for, is it calling for violence, or is it is it saying things because of the context that could actually harm people? And to me, those, I mean, and, you know, I haven't been in the, the town hall meetings in the New York Times, I, I, I probably am not the right person to, to comment on the internal discussions there of, of kind of what's happening. But I, but I do think, you know, there's valid arguments on, on both sides of that. And it's a very hard discussion to have in real time. And editors, I mean, this, is, this goes back to even why, you know, I think people are calling for tech companies to have more thoughtfulness around the editing of, of pieces, because editors have always had to deal with this question of, you know, is it appropriate to publish if it could harm national security? Is it appropriate to publish this if it could harm citizens? Like, that's always been a question in media. It's sort of the age-old question of, of you know, what is, the, what is the role and responsibility of, of publishers that I think is, is, is coming up because this is such a, you know, a, a difficult time for the country. Yeah. Do you think this leads to a fundamental change? You know, is the New York Times going to release less op-eds? Like, does it le- lead to less you know, uh, diversity, you're talking about the fairness doctrine, is, is maybe that repealed in, in some way? Or like, what do you think changes going forward as a result of this, if anything? Well, yeah, I mean, the fairness doctrine, you know, is, is no longer in effect. And I actually think that's why you've seen the rise of podcasting. That's why you've actually been able to see institutions be a lot more open with the types of voices that they have. What I think will happen with with institutional journalism is that, you know, you're already seeing people like Matt Taibbi join Substack full time because of what's happening in newsrooms. And it's, it, it's been sort of whispered, you know, that, that there's certain views or stories or things that, that don't get published um, that people want to do on their own. And there didn't used to be tech products that would support that. You know, it, it used to be very difficult. You know, I, I was unemployed in 2009 when I was a journalist and trying to find sources of income that would allow me to, to write stories was, was impossible. And the only answer was to be a freelancer and to hope that you would be able to get work. I think every journalist who was recently laid off because of COVID can now join Substack and bring their following from Twitter with them and do the stories they were doing before. That's extraordinary. And so I think you're going to see just a multitude of voices continue to do work independently, particularly if they are of the stature of someone who has 50,000 followers that, you know, has has a following that will pay for their newsletters and pay for their work. I think we'll just see more and more of that. The question will become, you know, 
is it preferable for these journalists to become independent? And you know, a good example of this is I was at the Washington Post in, in 2014 when Ezra Klein left uh, Wonk Blog, which was his you know, primary blog on the Washington Post and, and started Vox. And that's a perfect example of, of someone who had an incredible following and could become more powerful by starting a company around his own following and his own brand. Um, so I think you're going to see more journalists do that, but it won't necessarily look like venture-backed companies. It'll look like independent small businesses where, where people make a great living um, just doing the work. And, and what led to the Fairness Doctrine not being in, in, in effect anymore? Was it a specific event or just gradual? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so the revocation, so it was, it was actually, and I, I, I'm blanking on the, the timeline of it, but it was under the Reagan administration when it was, was fully revoked, or actually no, it was, it was revoked under the Reagan administration, fully revoked under the Obama administration, I think in 2012. But the, it, the, what, it, what it basically says is, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there's a reason why there, were, there was sort of a mononarrative um, in the news. And it was because there were three channels in which you could get, uh, you know, your, your televised news from. And there was a view that um, this is kind of both sides journalism that we're very familiar with as consumers is, you know, you, you had to present both sides of an argument. Um, it was considered fair on the one hand. This is what these people say. On the other hand, this is what these people say. And there was a, a lot more sort of tethering around what could be said on these you know, three channels. And when you opened up the lines of syndication um, and particularly, I mean, the Internet changed everything. But even before the Internet, talk radio was actually the battleground for this. When you open up the lines of communication and tell people they can actually, you know, spout their opinions or give news that's one-sided, um, it allowed for talk radio to blossom. That allowed then for for internet platforms to blossom. And there's always been a discussion about whether the revocation of the fairness doctrine, which you know didn't happen fully until 2012, but was in effect happening since the 80s, whether that just completely changed the media culture. It gave rise to organizations like Fox News. It gave rise to to different. Um, different voices and alternative voices. And, you know, I, I think it remains to, to back to your original question of, of why are we polarized? I do think that's one good example of why we were polarized because, you know, that changed the, the way that people could, could receive their news. My opinion is that the best way to fight that kind of polarization is to just have more voices. And that's why I'm excited about platforms like Substack and excited about all these new um, monetization channels for, for independent creators, because, it allows people to just have more access, which I think is, is very important. Um, but it also kind of puts the onus on the consumer to make sure that, that they're not staying in their silo and that they're actually seeking information. Is there a 2020 version of the, of the fairness uh, doctrine or is it sort of an even antiquated concept and, and it's really just consumer choice? Go, go you know. You know, it's interesting because I think that the the battle lines on the on the fairness doctrine, and it was you know between 2000 and 2010, there was a lot of discussion about you know is this actually really dangerous, and it was often discussed in terms of talk radio and Fox News. The the lobbying in Washington that actually like made it almost I think it makes it impossible to bring back the fairness doctrine is the fact that the big tech companies you know would fail if they didn't have this this freedom of speech element if they had to define themselves as publishers. You know, all of the content channels, you know, every, everyone from Google to Facebook, this is an important, you know, part of kind of freedom of the internet. Um, and so it was interesting, you know, to see kind of these strange bedfellows that the sort of more progressive companies in Silicon Valley were actually the ones that sort of forced this to happen under the Obama administration that, you know, that we need to have open lines of communications and free thought on the internet. And, you know, I think there is still debate. Um, it's definitely something that that's discussed, but I think the debate happens more in the lines of okay, private companies have a responsibility, as we saw with Twitter, to to decide what their terms of service are and what they're going to flag. I, I think that's where the debate is headed for sort of you know 2020, less about the legislation and more about kind of forcing companies, both inside of companies and outside of companies. You know, employees I think are sometimes the most vocal, but forcing companies to take a stronger stand on the terms of service seems to be where the, the battle is now. Yeah. Let's talk about the move to subscription and how that changes journalism. Like sometimes I'll see, you know, conservatives will unsubscribe to the New York Times and, and say, hey, it's it's too liberal. I mean, sometimes right now, a bunch of liberals just unsubscribe because of the Tom Cotton piece. But if you're a conservative and you're unsubscribing to New York Times, doesn't it mean that New York Times is just going to become even more liberal because they don't have you as a customer anymore? Does subscription just further polarize in terms of now you just you know, serve your niche and you serve them super well, i.e. give them the one-sided thing they want to hear? What's your take? I don't know that the subscribers actually dictate the editorial view of these large institutions. 
because these large institutions are constantly competing for eyeballs. It goes beyond just, okay, who's paying for the, the, you know, the newspaper, all of the major contributors at all, you know, Fox news, CNBC, MSNBC, they all come from newspapers. They all come from publications. Like people are more competing to be the lead of the national conversation. And what, what I think is just, you know, the, the sad reality of just how humans work is that like, the polarizing conversations get the most airtime. And so I don't know that, you know, lack of subscribers to any of these institutions is going to change how the news industry functions. You know, like news has always looked for salacious stories, always looked for polarizing stories. You know, the, 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 the investigations that matter most are the ones that are going to win you the Pulitzer. Like these are actually things that, that really matter. So I, I don't know that the, you know, if I unsubscribe to any of these, these newspapers, if that's actually going to change their, their editorial slant. I, I think it's, it's more, you know, I, I think if you trace sort of why newspapers have changed over the last 40 years, one thing that has happened in the newspaper industry is, you know, it used to be sort of this cottage industry trade public, like trade industry, where if you were a reporter, you may not have gone to college you, you may have had a, a father that worked as a newspaper man and you became one and it was sort of this craft. And in the 80s and 90s, it became an elite profession that was very difficult to get into and that very educated people went into. It wasn't necessarily that way, you know, before, before the 90s. Um, yeah. So I think that that's definitely been a change of the tone and the tenor of stories has become, you know, less community focused in many ways, not only because of the business model, but because the the people who are writing and the people who are editing have probably a much more more global and and and, and kind of macro view. Yeah, my, my my more positive view on subscription is that it might change how we even think about journalists in the first place. In the sense of, my guess is that there are a bunch of journalists who are very good, or some journalists who are very good at bringing traffic through, you know, very sort of sensationalist or almost gossip stories, but. Um, that some of them would have very little subscriber uh, numbers. And I'm thinking of like TMZ or Gawk. Like, I don't know how much you're going to pay to like hate on somebody else. Somebody else, I think you pay if you really love something or it adds value to your life. Now you might pay for a one-sided story, but it has to have more more substance to it. So maybe a writer who was getting 100,000 hits on a piece might only get, you know, 1,000 subscribers and thus would be worth less or respected less than somebody who only gets 20,000 hits on a piece, but has 10,000 subscribers, more of the Ben Thompson so I wonder if that might become more of the norm, uh, because when we think about journalists today, we don't think about that. We think more about the person who's getting hundreds of thousands of hits, but who isn't necessarily respected in the, same, in the, in the way of people wouldn't necessarily pay for, 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 for them in the same way. Does that resonate with you? Yes. No, I mean, I think subscription is the future of good journalism. Um, and I think talented journalists will be able to get subscribers and, and, and that it might look different in terms of whether they're at an institution or whether they're a small business themselves. Uh, but but I do think that subscription is you know a favorable way for us to go. What's interesting though is when you look at the most traffic sites in terms of news sites, I still I, I believe the Daily Mail is still the most traffic news organization on on the web, um, and you know that is a tabloid in Britain that caters to uh, you know celebrity and royal news and sensationalist news. Their model clearly isn't, you know, they're not charging for people to come to the site. And I don't know that people would, would go to the site for that reason, but it is the most traffic site. And so there are different models and, and clearly, you know, people will pay for, for great journalism, but, but advertisers will pay for, for those kinds of eyeballs as well. Yeah. If, uh, if Daily Journal would have, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers, then I will lose faith in humanity. <laughs> anyone, anyone who's a subscriber to the Daily Mail, I don't think that any, anyone would admit it. But uh, <laughs> but they, <laughs> it would uh, it would it would be it would be surprising if there were you know subscribers that are that are excited about that content. Totally. So journalism, the business model has been disrupted, but the actual product itself, I feel like uh, 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 you know some people are trying to disrupt it uh, more. Like our our friend Balaji, um, you know, he talks about these citizen journalists, but also just this idea of like open source journalism or I don't know if replicable journalism, but he has some uh, analogy to sort of peer review in, in academia or, or you know, it being able to be replicated or reproducible, sorry, reproducible journalism. Where do you agree and disagree with, uh, with Balaji on, on journalism? You know, it, it's interesting because I, I, I've morphed my views over time. You know, I think the media has changed, particularly the tech press has changed in the last few years in terms of how they cover 
institutions. And that's where I think a lot of Balaji's argument has been that we need independent journalists who um, you know, are verified, who, who are you know, subscribed to by reputation because the, the tech press has a lot of power. I, I agree with, I very much agree with Balaji that we need independent voices and that we need independent journalists. Like that, I, the, what, what I think is happening, you know, and, and we see it constantly of, of people who reach a certain level of fame or of importance, or they say something, they might hit a tripwire and say something that, that causes them to either have to leave their job or causes them to, to really question whether they can do the type of editorial reporting that they, that they need to do. Best example of this is, I think, the, the reporters who were working on COVID, you know, and, and that's where, that's where Balaji has really talked about why we need independent journalists, because, you know, in the early days of COVID, the media largely got that story wrong. If you look back through a lot of the headlines at the institutional press, uh, if you were, you know, saying that COVID is going to be a disaster, or if you were saying that people need to lock themselves down and be in their homes, you couldn't say that. And the early stories that that really, I think, made Balaji sort of a, a, a kind of focal point of this debate is that, you know, he was mocked by Vox for saying he wouldn't shake hands or for talking about Andreessen Horowitz having a sign that says, no handshakes, please. And so that, I think, is a really good example of, you know, a public health crisis is exactly the time where you want to hear debate and you want to hear more voices and you want experts to be able to dig in and actually find out what's happening. And there's a reason why institutional media didn't get that story early. And so I think we need to dig into why that is happening and correct it on the institutional level. But also, if we had more independent voices and people listened to those voices more, it could have prevented, you know, to, to what degree, I don't know, but it could have led to a different conversation at a national stage. So I think that's that is the you know probably the strongest argument I've heard for independent voices because it's not about you know op-ed debates or value debates it's literally about public health and 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 that is you know something I think we can all agree on that we need to have the the right facts and the right data presented to as many people as possible as early as possible. Yeah, and and just the lesson as a follow up to Belgium, which is basically like, hey, great journalism takes teams working together. It can't just be everybody you know in their in their silo. And, and maybe you know, Substack now has group bundles, and, and maybe that'll be there'll be some hybrid there with this new new subscription model. Uh, the, the thing I worry about, I'm curious to get your take on, is basically so if journalists are here to keep technologists accountable or keep business accountable, who keeps them accountable, or who keeps the, the people that the people in the platforms that host public discussion, which is one journalists and media corporations, but then also tech companies like Facebook and, and Twitter. I worry that there is a increasing like political monoculture, i.e., you know, only one side is, is 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 represented at those companies, and then two that they are getting more trigger happy as it relates to censorship. And I think we, we don't have really institutions that keep either of them accountable. And I think and because of that, I think free speech on those platforms is more important than ever, such that the people on them can 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 represent themselves fully. What is your take on sort of on uh, that that? point and, and just where censorship and free speech uh, are, are right now. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard this discussion a lot about like who keeps the, the who holds the journalists accountable. And, and I actually, I'm less concerned about that, because I do think that we are living in a time where the New York Times and the Washington Post have lost a lot of their power as monopolistic forces of the dominant narrative. Like, they put forth one story, but then there's, you know, 10,000 other outlets that have different takes on it. Um, there's a lot more media skepticism at the moment. So I worry that institutions aren't going to be able to to do the big scoop, you know, like that, that there's sort of been a sort of an undercutting of the faith that we put into these institutions to when we actually need them to do important investigations. Like, would we be able to have a Watergate that everyone agreed happened, you know, in, in this environment? And And that's what I worry about in terms of like, you know, who should hold them accountable I do think that independent voices are holding them accountable. I think tech, you know, if you look over the last few years, has become much more aggressive in putting forth their own stories on platforms like Twitter and platforms like like Facebook. Like people are going directly to their consumers in a way, very authentically, and that didn't happen five years ago in any business. Um, so, so I do think that 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 has been one sort of result of sort of this, you know, what you're pointing to, which is that journalists have become far more aggressive on the tech side. On, on certain issues um, that are, you know, important to them. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that, like, not all journalists are the same. And one of the things that that I'd love to see more research in is, you know, the kind of the tech press. Most of the kind of notable tech journalists that we know 
came out of the blogosphere. You know, like Ezra Klein was a blogger, like Recode very much started as an all things D blog. Like, like, like these were, these were people who were a different style of journalism and were very much kind of in the scene. It started out as like, you know, tech journalism decades ago was very much like fanboy journalism, people who were interested in gadgets and, you know, interested in the actual underlying technology. And that's changed. Like, it's very much become now the bloggers have become, you know, these seasoned uh, reporters at New York Times, Washington Post, and they have the voice of a blogger still. So there's a tone of snark that did very well in the blogosphere and that like very much still rules the internet, but doesn't necessarily jive with how kind of traditional reporters who've been at these institutions for 20 years have been taught to write stories. So there is a huge difference between like the political press in Washington and how they write and how they snark about things, which you know is very different than sort of the the tech press, which has always had this sort of voicey, combative, you know, more more loose style, uh, just because of where these journalists came from. Yeah, and what sort of led to the um, the introduction of snark as a as a as such a predominant sort of tone? Is it is it largely just the medium is the message and the internet rewards snark more than TV does or something? Or- you know, the, the kind of formal voice of institutions and print reporting. Um, even when I was at the Washington Post, you know, I, I mostly did sort of traditional print reporting, which is even, it's funny to even say print versus digital, but, but like there used to be a divide until very recently between those two groups of reporters. And the kind of uniformity of the voice and the importance of maintaining credibility is, is used to be paramount for these institutions. And where I think that's changed is that the, you know, the people who are the most artful online, like if I just, you know, put something very simple in a, in, in a tweet that is very straight and is not interesting, no one's going to like it. But if I make a joke or if I snark at someone, or if I do something that has a lot of authenticity and character, I'm going to get retweeted. So I just think the incentive structure of the platforms that are dominated by journalists has encouraged uh, voice and encourage authenticity, just as you know every platform has for every person. And I don't know that that institutions can fight against that anymore. Yeah, when you're competing with everybody for attention, you have to stand out in a way that when when you're not, you can just tell the story straight because you you have their attention. That makes sense. You, some people call the the golden age of journalism you know, maybe around the Watergate era or, or maybe, you know, just last century when, when there were sort of local SaaS businesses, uh, had monopolies of distribution and there's sort of a uniformity of, you know, people were, were had s- similar sort of ideas around what was happening in the world. Some people say the golden age is back when Ben Franklin was, was writing under, under 15 different pseudonyms and, and it was sort of the wild, wild West, but wasn't, um, you know, prone to sort of, a uh, uniformity of, 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 of thought or sort of cancel culture or, or sort of different, um, you know, different, uh, different things that, that are happening now. W- what's your take and which era are we more likely to go back to the one of, uh, you know, last century or the one of sort of the, the wild, wild west? I mean, I think we're, we're already in the wild, wild west as you, <laughs> as you suggested. I mean, I think the, the rise of pseudo anonymity on a lot of these platforms shows us that, that people want to be able to speak in a way that, that isn't necessarily, you know, in line with a lot of kind of the the journalistic standards or sort of the standards that people expect. And so, you know, I do think there's, there's been a lot of, of good writings about how, you know, having control of the syndication as three channels and major papers did in the fifties through the eighties the and nineties, that was a very unique time. And it was also a very unique business model in which advertisers controlled a lot of what was happening in and the editorial. And one of the things that they really wanted was they wanted these unbiased platforms. Macy's wanted to advertise on platforms that weren't, you know, conservative or weren't liberal. And, and so that's why you have these institutions that were, were very much on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, right now, I, I'd say advertising has been kind of decreased in importance and subscription is, is, is becoming much more important. And you're going to see people who have a very clear and specific, authentic way of looking at things. And they're going to be more open about it. Um, I think the openness is actually really good for and healthy for democracy, because then it allows the, the reader to make a, a decision. Oh, this person voted for this person, has a clear view, and this is how they interpret the world. And this is their worldview. And this is the type of reporting they're giving me. And it just allows for more choice, which I think is, is really important for, for a healthy uh, conversation and healthy media environment. Yeah. Is there a world in which institutions will restore their credibility or 
are they forever going to be you know continuously fragmenting because there's sort of this democratization of of access and everyone's trying to disrupt each other that you know faith in in you know, media corporations isn't going to come back uh, be restored to what it was or or maybe even universities or w- w- what's your take on you know uh, there was a book revolt of the public um what, what's your take on sort of the, the our faith in in, the, in these institutions you know, it's, it's interesting because I love that you pointed not just to, to media institutions, which I think often bear the brunt of this, this argument, but it's everything from elite education institutions, religion, as we were talking about before, you know, the you know, br- monarchies across the world, like any institution. What I think is interesting is any institution that has existed with authority for a long time is being questioned. And I do think part of the reason for that is sort of this opening up of what's happening in institutions. When media started allowing for reporters to be on Twitter and to be snarking about subjects and to be talking about things that used to only be seen inside the newsroom by other reporters, when they sort of became more authentic and more open, that's when people started questioning. The same can be said of our political institutions. Having a president who uses Twitter versus a president who goes through a PR person who allows for less transparency but kind of more authority on we are part of this institution. We've become less and less an institutional democracy and much more a personality-driven culture. And that weakens all of the institutions that, that used to kind of rely on that magic and sort of that authority that was given to them because we didn't know necessarily what was going on or we didn't have sort of this authentic interaction with the principal or the, the kind of person and figure. So... I think that's what we're seeing globally across all institutions is that this sort of movement to direct communication with people and authenticity has actually weakened uh, the institutions that give these people power. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, corporations used to have more of a apolitical stance, um, partially because, you know, Jordan used to say, hey, Republicans buy sneakers too. Um, but then also because, you know, corporations didn't have Twitter handles and people weren't asking them for their direct opinion all, all the time. You know, we, we didn't sort of personify corporations in the same way we do today, both legally and, and um, sort of via technology. And it's one thing I worry about, uh, or maybe it's not a worry, maybe it's just a trend, is corporate increasingly taking stands in ways that further polarize or alienate people and that you're just going to have, you know, these are companies where like left people work and these are companies where right people, right people work. And I think, you know, the incidents that happened in the last month, which are, or last few weeks, which are, you know, tragic and, and, you know, have basically uniform um, agreement on, but have encouraged people to make statements that some people, you know, say, Hey, they're not political. We've uniform agreement on them. But at the same time, if you're, if someone is saying, Hey, Trump is a threat to your life, then it's sort of by definition political and some, like it, it involves politics, i.e. Trump. And so I brought her questions about, is it okay to be a Trump supporter at, at certain companies to, to are companies going to just basically fragment along? Hey, here are companies that have conservatives here are companies that, that don't and what that means uh, going forward for sort of how corporations speak out. What, what, what is interesting to you about, about this topic or what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this topic from the lens of sort of the history of Silicon Valley and startups as political institutions. Uh, what I think people forget is, and, and, you know, the sort of, predominant way that we build companies now, particularly companies that can scale to the size of, of Facebook and Uber and Airbnb is through venture back companies. And the way that we build companies is by saying, you know, pick people who are usually not going to work in a bureaucracy. Like everyone forgets that Silicon Valley is built of misfits. These are people who can't work in other institutions. And so they build their own and they usually have a mission or a thesis that is antithetical to the dominant narrative, whether it's in their industry, whether it's the, the dominant belief of, of the country, like it's usually something that is polarizing by nature. And so what I think you see from, from startups in particular is that early stage companies are, you know, tied to one mission. They're people who are, 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 are very sold on this mission because they're, they're building it against sort of the, the grain. And they're talking about it authentically, directly with their customers much more early on. And so we now have that expectation. It's it's, part of the DNA of the companies that are being built here, but it's now the expectation if you are a tech company and you're coming of this culture where you have to be authentic with your users and you also are are built by people who are, are tied to this mission, 
by their nature, these companies are probably going to be more polarized at the early stage. And then there becomes a question of when you become Facebook or when you become Google and you're serving the entire world, how do you serve all of these different voices and all of these different people when there is a unique mission and a unique sort of true believer set of people at the company who started it for a very specific reason? Uh, so I think we have to keep that in mind because I, I don't think this way of company building is going away. And I do think that it's it's far more political than people like to admit because a lot of these missions and a lot of the people building them are building it because they disagree with the way things have been done before. Let, let me ask a question about, I went back to media corporations. There's some billionaires who own media corporations, right? Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. I think Benioff might own one. You know, Carlos Slim has some involvement in the New York Times. What is the relationship between ownership and editorial? And like, could you imagine more billion? Like, should Mark Zuckerberg have bought the New York Times, like, you know, years ago? Like, what is sort of the relationship between billionaires uh, owning media corporations? Do they actually have editorial? Are they, you know, wielding it? And is that an effective strategy for, for billionaires? You know, it's, it is very different at each paper. And there's a lot of debate on this. Um, I, I'd say the most extreme case was when Sam Zell bought the Chicago Tribune, I believe it was maybe, you know, maybe a decade and a half ago, and was so involved in editorial that pretty much everyone quit. It was, it was horrible in terms of kind of the oversight that he was, he was, you know, dictating to reporters and the treatment of reporters. There was actually very little uh, respect for the, the people he was working with. Jeff Bezos, on the other hand, from, from everything that I've heard, um, is, is very hands-off in terms of editorial. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things that, uh, that, I, that I thought was sort of funny is, you know, when he decided to write a Medium post uh, about um, having his phone hacked or, or having pictures released, he did it on Medium and didn't do it through the Washington Post. And I, I, I remember seeing a tweet from some people at the Washington Post saying, like, this is this is like every op-ed editor's worst fear is like the big story didn't even go to your own op-ed page. Um, so, so it's interesting. I, I, you know, I think there's always skepticism. There's skepticism in inside newsrooms too when a when a billionaire buys a paper. How hands-on are they going to be, and are they going to change the tenor of coverage? But there is this sort of very important divide between editorial and business and reporting that has existed long at these institutions. And, you know, reporters are very headstrong people and they take a lot of pride in that. And I think if there were significant overreach, most of the top reporters would, would resign in protest or, or not participate. So let's, um, let's, we're nearing close here. I want to wrap on sort of the, some of the investor perspective on some of these topics. You know, we've talked about religion, we've talked about media, I'm curious for your sort of requests for startups or things that you're you're looking at. For example, on the journalism side, would you have backed Substack or something like it, or or what could you see yourself backing that's that's really disruptive? And I presume it's not like a, a BuzzFeed or a Vox or just another one of these things, but but something truly that disrupts the the business model or, or the product itself. Uh, that's my assumption. And then on the religion side, you know, I see a lot of this is a crazy question, like sustaining innovation, basically things that like help people get more in touch with Christianity. I, I have a crazy question, which is like why aren't people creating new religions? Like we have new social media platforms or, or new tech platforms every 50 years or so. Why aren't people like either updating in serious ways or creating new ones or are they, but they just don't look like Christianity. They look like CrossFit or something. Like what's your, what's your take here? Yeah, no, I mean, on your first question, I am very eager to talk to anyone who is building something for independent journalists or independent creators I do think that's probably the only solution. You know, we, we can talk about wouldn't it have been nice to be living in the past and having these institutional journalists doing such great work. Um, I know when I was a reporter, I sort of longed for the golden years of the 80s and 90s, but I don't think that's possible anymore. And so what is the solution going forward? I think it's more voices rather than less. And I do think it's subscription versus advertising revenue uh, because it's much harder to game uh, subscription. And I think people will pay for quality. That's always been something and, and that we've seen across any sort of consumer company. So I'm excited for quality journalism to be backed by, by consumers. So anyone supporting that mission, I'd love to talk to them. On the religion side, you know, I, I do think that COVID and the conversations this country is having about race and all of the events of 2020, but even the last, you know, five years are leading people to, to question these you know, larger questions of what the meaning of life is and are, are leading to more seeking. And even if it's not seeking in the traditional sense of, of going to church or going to a synagogue or going to a mosque, but, but it's, it's seeking in a, in a more spiritual context, that is something that all major world religions contribute to. 
Um, and what I like about these, this kind of new generation of, of tech companies is that they're not forcing you to really change a behavior. They're taking the, the kind of best parts of a lot of these religions and they're allowing people to do it from the comfort of their own home, which is why I think they've seen this incredible COVID bump. Uh, but I think they're going to continue to see that as these you know, crises and, and questions continue in our country and, and continue globally, frankly. Religiosity is on the rise globally. 86% of people globally identify with a religion. So I think in terms of an investable area, it's one of the most ignored areas and one of the largest markets. So it's definitely a great place to invest. But to your question on why, you know, why ancient religions and, and not new ones, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think the, the ancient religions have been largely overlooked by, you know, kind of the, the media narrative now and, and offer, you know, they all offer the, the things that, that people have been looking for for thousands of years, and that's why they've survived. So, so it'll, it'll, it would be interesting to see what a new religion would look like in terms of if does it speak to, to the vast majority of people who, who may be getting sort of their, you know, questions answered through these ancient religions that have been passed down for, for generations. But, but it, it is a good question. It's one that I hear a lot in Silicon Valley. Yeah, but perhaps people don't change that much, and they've worked for thousands of years, and they'll continue. They continue to work. The so perhaps in, in closing, um, and it's hard to predict, you know, future interests. But I'm, I'm curious, like, if Catherine, if you come back to this podcast six months from now, a year from now, what, what do you think our topic will be then, or what do you think your next piece is on, or what are some other areas in which you are, or another area in which you're excited to dig into, or learn more about, or explore, or, or write about? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, religion and media have been, have been taking up a lot of my time. And, and, and as you know, I spend a lot of time um, in deep tech as well. And, you know, I, I, COVID has changed so many things about our society. And I, I do think there's a, a tendency to say, well, things will go back. But I also think this has just been a historic year in terms of the number of changes that have happened in the country and how kind of history has accelerated. And, you know, I, I think that means that it's going to, for, for highly regulated industries, which I spend a lot of time in, there's going to be a lot of changes that stick. And healthcare is certainly one. Um, I, uh, I recently invested in a telehealth company that helps people overcome opioid addiction. And for years had been looking at that thesis as, you know, why is it so difficult to match doctors with patients who need access to Suboxone? And a lot of the question was regulatory. You couldn't do it digitally. And now you can because COVID has relaxed those laws to make sure that people who are struggling with opioid addiction and who are on therapies to treat it can now get access to their medications. And so I hope we don't go back. I hope we continue that, that solution because it is a really powerful solution. Uh, the company I invested in is Ophelia Health, and, and they've done extraordinary work during, during this crisis. And so I think we'll see more, more companies that are, that are you know, benefiting from changes in regulation and changes in how people think about, you know, what can be done remotely versus what has to be done in person. So I'm sure I'll, I'll have many more theses uh, as we come out of, out of this crisis and out of COVID related to a lot of those issues. You'll have to, you'll have to come, come back then. My guest today has been Catherine Boyle. Catherine is a partner at General Catalyst. If you're an entrepreneur working in something uh, in, in these topics, religion, media, but also deep tech, uh, GovTech, we have a co-investment in, in, in a biotech co-investment in Spring Discovery. Uh, I believe Catherine helps run the seed program. Is that accurate? I do. I do. Definitely uh, work with uh, work with Catherine. We we highly recommend it. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much again. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.